Hey, Yogi, Sarah Burchard here, and you are listening to Yoga Unplugged Conversations, a show dedicated to helping you grow, thrive, and gracefully make tough life decisions so you can lead a happier, healthier life. Today, we are taking a slight detour from some of our more personal development-focused shows to talk about nature, specifically what we can accomplish by connecting to the environment through wild foods. This topic has fascinated me ever since I was introduced to the work of Sunny Savage, who is my guest on the show today. Sunny is an internationally recognized authority on wild foods. She is the author of Wild Food Plants of Hawaii and is the creator of the Savage Kitchen mobile app, which we will learn all about today. Her wild food cooking series, Hot on the Trail, has been aired in countries around the globe, and her TED Talk, You Can Eat That, The Gift of Wild Foods, has over 11,000 views on YouTube. Sunny is passionate about sharing her intimate connection to the wild with the rest of the world, and she is brilliant at it. Her talks are inspiring and educational and approach conventional theories about how we should handle invasive plant species in a new, more love-based way. Full disclaimer, I had the honor of having Sunny come and guest speak at my last Farm to Table dinner in Honolulu. She not only gave a very moving talk, but she also foraged for all of the wild ingredients on my menu and even helped me prep some of the meal. We have been friends ever since, and I am thrilled to have her on the show today. Welcome to the show, Sunny. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's an honor. I'm so excited to have you here. You have such an amazing personal story, so I'd like to start with that. You have experienced more before your 30th birthday than many of us will experience in our entire lifetime. And so before we dive into today's topic, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your world travels, and how you got into this world of wild foods? Absolutely. Um, it's been a wild ride kind of from the beginning. I uh, was born to back to the lander parents in northern Minnesota. And um, the back to the land movement was kind of like kind of the next level hippies of like, okay, well, now we want to really try and put some of these ideologies of like <laughs> living more closely and harmoniously with the earth uh, to practice. So I grew up without electricity or running water and we grew a lot of food and we certainly did some wild foods. We had a sugar bush and tapped maple trees and, you know, I certainly was out harvesting different wildflowers. But my real passion for wild foods came when I left Minnesota. I graduated from high school and then I went and lived in Antarctica for a year. And when I returned home from that experience, my mom had gotten into herbal medicine and I started making tinctures and salves and all kinds of fun herbal products with her. And I was into it, but then I read in one of her books that you could actually eat some of the medicinal plants. And it was really, you know, my absolute moment of finding my passion and really realizing from the age of 19 on that that was my thing, that was my jam. And so um, with that real thirst for adventure, I ended up traveling to every continent before I was 30, just having that absolute joy de vivre and really um, seeking out experiences that tested myself and my own, you know, just constantly trying to shift my paradigm and experience life through different cultures and 
flavors and learning about the plants from different people around the planet. And so, yeah, I really was able to chalk up a lot of experience and uh, have a lot of blessings along the way to, you know, make that possible. So what a gift to be able to have this well-rounded approach from traveling all over the world. So what makes Hawaii such an ideal place for foraging and wild foods? Well, I was hosting a television show and I uh, came to Hawaii to film and ended up just immediately falling in love and it felt so comfortable. I think that ultimately it is the Hawaiian culture that, you know, really is what pulls me in the most because I feel like aloha is absolutely alive. And when you walk down the street and you can look people in the eyes and and feel that connection of respect and love, that that is the the biggest, um, most foundational piece of my being here and wanting to participate in perpetuating that. That said, I have been frostbitten and hypothermia so many times in my life after, you know, living in the Himalayas, working in the Dalai Lama's temple to, you know, Antarctica to life in the Northwoods of Minnesota, that my body feels so much better being here. And, you know, it's a, it's a transition. I, I really do have deep-seated feelings of remembering the flavors and the tastes, the smells and all of that from the the Smoky Hills forest from where I was born and raised. But I I feel so much better in my body being here. And again, it just really comes back to to living aloha. Yeah. I could not agree more. <laughs> probably the exact same feeling that I have. And I too needed to thaw out. Not that I came from the Himalayas or (laughs) certainly the the temperatures that you came from, but um, my body thrives in this warm, humid climate as well. So I hear you on that. Let's dive into wild plants. What can we learn from wild plants. What what why is this your focus of study and and honestly like your life sort of revolves around it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's very rich and very complex. So, um hard to put into a short sound bite, but really for starters, I would say that uh the wild plants are really connecting us to the natural landscape around us in a very unique way that I don't feel cultivated foods do. And that is that they are kind of on the front lines of global climate change where they're not being coddled in a setting where they're, you know, the weeds are being pulled and they're allowed to grow and spread as, you know, as as much as they'd like, and they're not being watered and they're not being having nutrients added to them. They're really these survivors that are adapting to uh, changes that are happening in our climate. They are survivors that are adapting to pathogens in the environment. So there are different um, bacteria and fungus and things that you know, also we think of in our own human health, but that also affect plants. And so these plants are also 
coming up with their own antibodies, their own allelochemicals, and their own ways um, to support themselves through all of that. And so I feel like it's a very unique scenario where that ability to adapt and that ability to thrive amidst all of these changes are really in this hyper-warped speed of evolution for these plants. And so when we eat that, we know that we are what we eat. And it's such an old adage, but it is so profoundly uh, reinforced through modern day science. And so the pieces of genes, you know, that genetic material is all coming through and that becomes a part of us. And it's that sharing of information. So, you know, that would be my first piece right away is connecting in with the wild and connecting in with survival and thriving amidst everything that's happening. And speaking of survival, I want to talk about invasive plant species because I love your attitude towards these plants. Can you share your thoughts about how invasives can help with the food security fears we face here in Hawaii? Yeah, I mean, when I look out on the landscape, um, you know, I'm looking at lines of abundance. Where is the energy flowing within the landscape? And the invasives are hitting on that thread. You know, they are the resources, shall we say. It's, it's kind of a <laughs> closed-in word. But, you know, it's the resources that are found in the most abundance in our ecosystem. So what we've had is this long-standing you know, what I feel is really part of that kind of colonized mindset of applying like, okay, these are bad. The invasives are bad. And so now we're going to go and say, they're bad. We're going to wipe them all out. But when when we perpetuate that cycle of thinking, it doesn't, you know, we, we all know that (laughs) shit's getting real. And like, we, we are not, healthier and we are not you know the ecosystem is in peril so what needs to shift and it it, to me it's really that mindset around how we're interacting with ourselves and with the with aina you know with the land around us and so for me the invasives are absolutely a recognized imbalance in the system i mean Absolutely. But if we apply the same kind of mindset that we're just going to go in and eradicate them, which is, you know, 98% done through chemical inputs, we are not going to get to the place that we need to be to, you know, to thrive in the future. And so my feeling is that we won't be able to fully understand how to deal with the invasives until we are actually working with them. I'm one person, but you know, I can't sit on a soapbox and profess that I know what the answers are. It isn't until we come together in community to 
work with the land and those invasives are the most abundant resources of the land that we will have an understanding of how to move forward so yeah invasives are available yes <laughs> they're they're very available <laughs> they're very sustainable and you know just as a first line of defense it's a very complex issue and so if you just say eating invasives is going to get rid of them well sure maybe in our generation we can stop further seed dispersal so like we're going to go out and eat java plums and at least it stops all of those seeds from dropping on the ground. Maybe the next generation will cut the java plum trees, use that wood, use that bark for medicine, use those leaves for medicine, use those flowers for medicine. And when they re-sprout, then more of those fruits will be available for people. And through generations of time, you know, you're looking at how to actually do land conservation because these things are, we're multiple generations are such a small blip on the timeline of earth. Mm -hmm. And we have some pretty large scale issues that we're dealing with. So at least getting out there and stopping kind of that further seed dispersal, even if it's not actively removing every single plant at this time, is a powerful way to actually work with conservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just educating people on how they can use these plants, which kind of brings me to my next question. I'm, I'm going to veer off topic just a little bit, but kind of brings me to my next question, which, you know, you've been studying herbal medicine for a long time. What are a few of the more common medicinal plants you can find here in the wild and how do you use them? How, how can people use them? Well, all of the invasives that I highlight are also medicines. Mm -hmm. And the idea of food as medicine to me is, is the most important because Basically, most of the chronic issues that we face are, you know, overweight and obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular health. All of these things are diet, lifestyle related issues that, you know, huge, huge improvements can be made in extremely short periods of time through change of diet. So, for example, Java plum. The Java plum seeds were one of the most widely traded things in the global market. This is for diabetes. Mm -hmm. This is pre-insulin. So once insulin was developed, then we see, you know, the dropping away of the use of the, of the seeds. But those seeds of Java plum are and the science is just phenomenal it shows all of this so java plum seeds for diabetics powerful medicine and i am not suggesting anybody get off their metformin you know <laughs> right now <laughs> sure i'm just teasing into the imagination that we have powerful tools of healing at our fingertips mm -hmm. and to make that transition is an educated way of doing so but um anything from also using java plum young twigs for dental health it's like okay you've eaten a large meal and now 
you know, you need to clean your teeth. And instead of using a one-time disposal plastic little tooth cleaner, Java plum invasive, I see it growing all around every single island, windward side, leeward side, all the way around. You know, this is very, very easily accessible tree. You know, just taking those small twigs, scraping off the outside and using them as small toothpicks. So not only are you cleaning your teeth with something that can return right back to the earth, but also the ability to stabilize blood sugar levels, even in that, in those twigs, which is helpful after a large meal. The leaves could also be used that way for anybody who's pre-diabetic. I, um, or even just, you know, wanting a delicious taste. I just take the Java plum leaves give them a rinse, crush them, and put them into uh, my water and let that infuse for 10 minutes and just drink that, sip on it throughout the day. I mean, it's phenomenal. And again, the science shows that incredible ability, not only when dealing with diabetes, but also uh, just the powerful antioxidants. Yeah, those berries make such a great drink. Oh, I know. I mean, we haven't even touched on the flesh of the berries. Yeah. I mean, you're get, you're eating purple. The phenolic compounds in there are, you know, through the charts. This is high potent medicine food. And you really truly don't need to be eating massive amounts of it. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the foraging thing can become overwhelming of like, oh, I'm out processing, you know, harvesting and processing all of these foods. But, you know, just eating too fresh java plum a day, you are getting, you know, you're getting iron, you're getting all of these incredible antioxidants. So, I mean, that's one plant. I mean, then you've got Spanish needles in Hawaii here, we call it kinehi, the Bidens. Uh, I mean, especially over on Oahu, it's got a little uh, white daisy looking flower. It's a wild green that pops mm-hmm. up all over. This plant is known to treat you know, it's, it's used in the treatment of over 40 diseases. So not only is it a wild grain that is delicious, it is also a profoundly medicinal plant used in anti-cancer treatments, very powerful anti-tumor for cervical cancers, oral cancers, breast cancers, liver cancers, and colon cancers, as well as testing for um, leukemia. It's been used in the treatment of herpes. It's more powerful than drugs on the market for ulcers. So people dealing with ulcers. It's also in, you know, in La'au Lapa'au, the Hawaiian traditional medical system. It's a powerful antibiotic, a systemic antibiotic. So with this you know, overuse of antibiotics that's really happening, here you have the ability to feel confident in the use of herbal medicine for for antibiotics. And, you know, all of this is, you know, you can't just do these sweeping statements and it's not a cure-all for everything. But, you know, I'm really coming out with some incredible information with the launch of the app and the online resources that I'm making available where I've been gathering all of this research for a decade. And then I actually um, hired a science writer to, because I, you know, I have multiple degrees in nutrition and 
am familiar with science, but there really takes somebody who has a keen eye to say like, oh, this research study is actually designed well and, you know, interpreting that. So I've mm -hmm. actually hired, you know, science writers to come in and really make sure that we've got some really high quality information. So wow. great, Sunny. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's so much. I mean, even things from spiny amaranth being an analgesic. I mean, now we've got over 70% of the population in the United States taking prescription medicine. And then you have all of the folks who are reaching just for over-the-counter medicines. And the number one thing that people reach for is pain medicine. Well, you know, you make a high potency tincture of spiny amaranth and here in a dose dependent manner you've got an analgesic a pain relieving medicine mm -hmm. you know that's not something to just take lightly this is really true medicine that's at our fingertips it's growing in our backyards it's growing in the wastelands and we need to stop the chemicalization i mean that's really this first step of like you know, stopping the overuse of the pesticides and the herbicides because we have all of this stuff growing here and it's available. It's already here and we oh. just need to use it. Yeah. Um, also, I'm going to just throw one more thing because yeah. I, you know, I get, on, I get on this roll, but you know, so many people <laughs> take the chlorophyll supplements, right? People mm. are taking chlorophyll and iron, spiny amaranth. It's like chlorophyll. It's right there. It's, it's amazing. So anyways, so the yes. Spanish needles, would you make a tincture with that too? Or those can, can you just eat those straight or make a tea or what's the best way to ingest that? Well, it just depends on what you're going for. I would say first and foremost, start eating it. Start using food as your medicine. It's a preventative medicine. So if you're eating it regularly, or even if you don't get to eat it regularly, even if you eat it every once in a while, but you have that information coming through from that plant to to assist you and be an ally for you so anyways i typically don't eat the greens raw i prefer them boiled and then i'll like wait for them to cool squeeze out the water and then add those greens to whatever i'm eating i will dry and dehydrate the greens and then use those in tea blends it's a wonderful tea widely used throughout the world in that way. You can eat the flower petals. So the, we have two different species. We have the one like that you guys have over on Oahu with, so, with the big white ray florette petals. Mm -hmm. On Maui, we have more of um, one that just has the center yellow disc part of the flower. But you can eat those center flowers. So yeah, so just eating it. And then when you want to start to dip into herbal medicine, there are, you know, other resources that you can be guided to for that, but making a tincture, which is basically in folk herbal medicine, you're, you're taking a plant material and you're chopping it up and you're covering it with alcohol and you're letting it sit for a moon cycle, you know, roughly 30 days, shaking it occasionally. Um, and then you strain out all of the plant and you squeeze it out and you strain it and then you bottle that and you take that tincture when you've got something going on and that dosage really depends on your body weight it depends on what kind of issue and the strength of 
you know, the dosage that you need. Mm -hmm. So yeah, tincturing, making teas and eating the plant are great starting off points. One of the things that was so eye-opening for me when you came out from Maui to speak at our dinner was that you were finding these ingredients all over my neighborhood. And I live in town. You know, you went out foraging as well in, in the mountains and, and along the coast, but you were finding them downtown in a city. And just the other day, a friend of mine pointed out a java plum tree right down the street on Ala Moana, across the street from the farmer's market. That's completely going off. <laughs> and uh, last year, I walked by this, you know, this vacant parking lot in Kakako, and there's like cherry tomatoes growing like out of the sidewalk. And I'm like, huh, like they really are, edibles really are all around us. So what do you suggest for people who are interested in foraging these wild foods but have no experience? Because, you know, obviously they're, you know, people have to be careful. We don't want anybody to forge the wrong thing and um, have a Absolutely. negative reaction. Yeah. Well, the number one rule is that you don't eat something that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so if you just stick with what you know, and maybe that's only one thing, then you know that one thing and um you know then you can learn two things um but it is uh, oftentimes an intimidating thing and i think that we have a lot of stereotypes thousands and thousands of people die every year from pharmaceutical drugs thousands of people die from going out to eat and getting e coli and other foodborne illnesses from eating out at restaurants but there isn't an ingrown fear factor associated with that whereas eating wild foods it's like you know everybody's so afraid they're going to eat the wrong thing and die mm -hmm. and you know basically that doesn't really happen <laughs> very, you know <laughs> it just really doesn't happen very often so so kind of lightening up and like trying to like put it in perspective a little bit for yourself of where real risk really lies. But going out with a, a person is absolutely the best way. And on Oahu, you have an absolute treasure of a human, Nat Bledder. Yes. And Nat leads monthly foraging hikes through the Oahu Slow Food portal online. You can sign up for his foraging hikes. Nat is a skilled forager. I have known him for over a decade now, and he's a real gem for folks on Oahu. I also lead uh, foraging hikes here on Maui occasionally. So folks can sign up for my newsletter to find out when those are happening. You know, if you're listening to this from outside of Hawaii, there are, are listings of foragers found around the globe through the Association of Foragers, as well as on eattheweeds.com, a site hosted by Green Dean. So there are folks that are continuing on with the craft of wild crafting. But, you know, I think you would really be surprised with just talking to Kapuna, you know, talking to elders that live here you know a lot of stuff has been lost and a lot of the weeds you know these wild plants a lot of them are newer introductions that maybe 
uh, people are unfamiliar with, but there is still a lot of knowledge around. And once you start poking around and, you know, going to whether it be a botanical garden or whether it be um, to a plant nursery or places like, um, you know, going to the Hawaii Farmers Union meetings and things like that, you'll definitely start to find people who have a lot of knowledge to share with you. Mm -hmm. I have a guide, uh, a free guide online that's called How Not to Kill Yourself Foraging. <laughs> and it's, it. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of went with the flashy title, even though, <laughs> you know, very, you know, hardly anybody ever dies from foraging. But that really starts to teach you basic plant botany and things to keep in mind and starting to tune into the environment. Like, okay, well, if I know this plant is coastal and I'm on the top of the mountain, if it looks like it, hmm, I might have to like really question that and really use my fine-tuned ways of identifying a plant. Like there can be plants that show up on the top of a mountain that are normally coastal. But, you know, you start to learn patterns. You start to learn different characteristics of plants that can help you so that it's so that you don't have to work on the identification every single time. But you do have to put that time into working on identification in the beginning. And it's a step that you know, nobody can do for you. You have to do that because it's, it's your health, it's your body. And, you know, you don't really want to make a mistake. And it's also, you know, if somebody does get sick, it's not the plant's fault. The plant is who will get blamed, but that's your fault for not putting in the energy to, to take the time to do that. So, so anyways, you know, I have that guide. I have this uh, mobile app that's coming out. Yeah, that let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it will definitely help with plant identification. The app is called Savage Kitchen. And I always get a little leery about saying when it'll launch because, you know, things happen and you, you never quite know. <laughs> but the projected launch date is on Earth Day. And on Earth, they will be celebrating Earth through the community building activity of foraging. And the app is covering five edible invasives. And even though it's five, it's really more like 17 because, you know, there's strawberry guava, but there's three different varieties of strawberry guava, not just the red ones. There's two different yellow species. And, you know, the Spanish needles, there's two different species of Spanish needles. And so all of these things, you'll be learning detailed information about the plants, about their history. You'll be able to take quizzes to test yourself on identification. Yeah, that's cool. uh, you'll be able to see tons of photos. You'll be able to see some pictures of lookalike plants, infographs on really driving home the point that we don't want to fall in love with these and then start planting them in our garden because mm -hmm. they're invasives. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to, you know, do really true land management practices through eating them and not spreading them further. Um, so then after the identification piece, you can just hop onto the mapping section and there are, it's an interactive mapping program that helps you locate where these edible invasives are within public spaces. And so 
hope I'm, I'm hoping that people will start dropping data points all over. I've been going to the islands myself to populate the maps to kind of get it started. And once the community gets involved, you know, hopefully we'll have more and more, you know, points on the map so oh, that so you the can users actually can also drop pins as well. Yes, absolutely. Wow, no, this is cool. this is interactive. It's, yeah, it's we're going gotcha. to blow it up. We're going to yeah. blow it up. And then the final piece is recipes. And I've been developing recipes as well as um, inviting in other chefs like yourself who have contributed <laughs> phenomenal recipes to the Savage Kitchen app um, to really catapult this forward in in a in a really you know rapid way i feel that people get so excited about recipes and myself included when i started out foraging you know there was just nothing out there for i mean if you, if you found one book that talked about identifying wild edibles it was like your gem and then if you found anything that had a recipe it was basically with lard and sugar and not something that i was necessarily going to make and so i always felt like that was my piece that i was filling in was how to kind of bring these things into our modern day diets and really bump up the the flavor profiles. I mean, it's like so many chefs have never even played with any of these things before. So it's a whole new realm of flavors for, for our palates as well. So yeah, between the, you know, really robust features of the app, uh, there's also a guide section with like, oh, new to foraging, start here. And here's all the resources. And like, you know, I've done full bibliographic, you know, outlines of like, okay, these are books. And here's the website of, you know, Star Environmental, where you can identify plants that are in Hawaii. And so I've been really working hard on on creating this resource and then the additional resources of these, you know, kind of what we call in plant terminology monographs, plant monographs, or they're basically like small books with the deep dive for people who really want to deep dive into the information with, okay, so we say this is good for diabetes, but how is it affecting? Because we have so many different pathways with the pancreas and the blood sugars and in and how are these things actually affecting? What is the ethno-botanical, how have cultures around the, the globe been using these plants? What, you know, the botany and... So yeah, so I'm really, really excited about this project. And I also, you know, am stoked to kind of ride on the wave that it was started through a Kickstarter campaign that I ran. And so, you know, the community kickstart to, to this whole thing. And so, you know, the community yeah. wants it and is yeah. behind it. Yeah. What an incredible resource. And God, we are so lucky to have you because, <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of other people doing it. Like you said, it's hard to find recipes. It's hard to find any kind of information sometimes about these wild foods and how to use them. And I think you're right. I think People love recipes, and I think that's what's going to get people to get out and start foraging is if they know what to do with these plants. Because other than that, they're just kind of yeah. weeds. So I think it's yeah. really, really important that people have the education behind how to use them. And they are delicious, and they can be made into all kinds of things. I mean, we had four or five, four courses on our dinner, and 
and each one completely different, you know, even had a dessert. And it was a real eye opener to work with these ingredients because they're not your ordinary everyday ingredients. So, I mean, even though a a green is a green, you know, it it tastes different. So you have to, to really think about how that will go with your dish and how that will play with the other flavors. And so to have sort of some guidelines and to have some tried and true recipes, I think makes this much more approachable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you do you think that we're gonna have more foragers in the future sourcing wild foods for restaurants and markets for a living, like we have mushroom foragers on the mainland? Yeah, I do. I mean, the economic growth potential of this market is really huge, and. At a fundamental level, I feel like the beauty of wild foods is the stories and that act of actually doing it ourselves. You know, the fact that you can't go to the store and buy this stuff. But I also recognize that, you know, we need to have artists and we need to have mechanics and we need to have carpenters and that, you know, not everybody, everybody eats. So getting to food security and, you know, contributing to your own food security is an absolutely essential piece of the puzzle moving forward amidst a climate crisis. That said, all of these other skill sets are also valuable and needed and people are busy. And so I definitely see that cottage industry potential for the wild foods. And that's the reason that I, you know, only focus on invasives because we live in very sensitive, delicate island, you know, ecosystems that you popularize one food that isn't found in abundance. And, you know, that's a disaster for that plant. And I have, yeah. Where's this out of balance? Yep. And I've personally seen that happen with so many things that have become popularized. And so that's why, you know, my own good conscience, my own ethics, I cannot promote anything other than invasives. And so I, you know, we have like 400, over 400,000 acres of strawberry guava. So, you know, that is not a shortage of material to work for. It really comes down to access at the end of the day and opening up places that are part of the public commons and should be made available to people. You know, Hawaii has some very difficult terrain. So, you know, there are some challenges. I mean, Java Plum, you're not fine. Java Plum is accessible. Lower elevations are all over the place. Strawberry Guava, you know, you get into, um, I mean, it's definitely accessible in many places. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely enough to keep us busy for a couple generations. Mm -hmm. But you've got, you know, some higher elevation stuff that is harder to, to reach. But, you know, I mean, I just think of strawberry guava alone. So not only do you have the beautiful fruits that are, you know, the nutrition is just, it's really off the charts, but you also have the leaves that can be distilled into essential oils and that have more beta carophyllene than the highest breeds of cannabis that are being grown for beta carophyllene. It's a, beta carophyllene is a part of our, it attaches to the CB2 receptors in our body, which is part of our endogenous, like 
cannabinoid system, the cannabinoid system in the human body that exists. And so you've got cannabis growers who are growing strains of cannabis for CBD, for pain and anti-inflammatory properties with beta-carophylline. The highest percentages of those CBD strains are in the high 30s, whereas the strawberry guava leaf essential oil has got, you know, up into the 70s. Wow. You know, so here we've got this medicine that's invasive growing all around us, you know, that's available that really should be utilized. The same goes with our, our you know, wild butterfly gingers. Mm-hmm. We've got the Kahili ginger, which is, you know, the last reports are over 60,000 acres, but you've got hundreds of thousands of acres if you include the white butterfly ginger and the yellow butterfly ginger. I mean, I've had samples of, you know, I'm a distiller, so I distill for aromatics, and I've sent samples of my hydrosol to labs in France to be analyzed, and it's extremely high in linalool. Well, linalool is calming and anti-anxiety. It's what you would associate for those effects in lavender. Most people know like, oh, lavender is calming and, you know, the de-stressor. Well, lavender is wonderful, but, you know, you go to the lavender farm on Maui and they grow it for show for tourists, but then they ship in all their lavender from off island that they sell, (laughs) you know, so... So we've got, you know, such a huge spa industry in this yeah, state. The spa industry is massive mm-hmm. and it's all being shipped from far away. Why don't we have Kahili ginger essential oil being utilized in the spas, yeah. you know? So this is, this is really big picture stuff. You know, this is hundreds of thousands of acres of plant material that is detrimental to the ecosystem in its current iteration, but could be used, you know, in these ways. So yeah, it's exciting. Oh my God. (laughs) There's so much, there's so much we can do. There's just so many possibilities and opportunities here. I mean, there's opportunities for businesses. There's, you know, for people to, for entrepreneurs to, to start utilizing these and um, make some amazing things and help the environment at the same time. Absolutely. It's no such a win-win. It is yeah. such a win-win to help the earth, help ourselves and get back into balance. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got it. We've got it at our fingertips. It's figuring out how to do it. Yeah. Sunny, if our listeners are interested in learning more about foraging and wild foods, how can they connect with you? Well, they can find me on social media at Sunny Savage Official and also my website, sunnysavage.com. And they can sign up for your newsletter there? And they can sign up for my newsletter. Yeah, that's like really the great way to really stay connected. And are you still selling some of your products on your website? I have so many ideas for products and I've developed so many products, but I feel that I have just reached this point where I need to be an educator and mm-hmm. doing, um, I, I would love to develop products in the future. Definitely the, you know, the hydrosols I sell 
I don't have them for sale on my website right now, but I probably will have small runs of things, you know, okay. seasonally available things. But I'm really trying to kind of just focus on digital content, educational mm -hmm. materials for folks. So yeah, I'm working on that. And I know that there will be products that come in the future. And I've got an amazing wild food intern who's here and doing um, illustrations. And so we're working on some t-shirt designs and fun things like that. But for now, I'm, I'm actually, you know, just having a hard time with coming to grips with doing products because, you know, you put something and you wrap it up into plastic bubble wrap and then you ship it off somewhere Fair else. Enough. And I just, <laughs> I just feel like I, I'm not cool with that anymore. Yeah, and, um, makes sense. So I'm really trying to transition to mostly digital download, download stuff and then see after, you know, the deep breath of the, the app launch and how it's received and how the community utilizes it, you know, how I could fit in with developing some future products. So great. Sunny, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you. It's it's awesome. You're such a wonderful human, Sarah. It okay. was wonderful to work with you and to call you a friend. Thank oh, you. The feeling is mutual, 100%. Now, I'd love to hear from all you listeners out there. So please let me know what you thought of the show and if you have any topics or questions that you'd like me to tackle on the show. The team of Yoga Unplugged and I are here for you. So please let us know. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation with us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at yogaunplugged.org. Find us on Facebook at Yoga Unplugged by Jennifer Reuter. Reuter is spelled R-E-U-T-E-R. -E or connect with us on Instagram at yoga underscore unplugged. Thanks for listening, everyone. Namaste.